we need to address the Lord together. So let's do that. God, our Heavenly Father, truly the last thing that we need in a noisy culture is more talking by us. But Father, we need Your Word to speak into our lives and to our hearts and to our minds. We need it to wash our eyes so that we can see the beauty of Your holiness. We need You to clean out our ears so we can hear Your voice. Cleanse our minds of everything that is wicked and sinful that we have contemplated this last week, Father, that we might drink in the pure milk of Your Word and that it might nourish us and help us to grow. Father, I pray as we open Your Word this morning that we would be awestruck by the amazing love that You have displayed to us. And Father, we... uh, we pray as, you open, as we open Your Word that You would speak and that I would diminish and that Your Word would speak powerfully to Your people. Because we, Your people, need to hear from You. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be back in Romans chapter 8. And this chapter, as a whole chapter, is all about the benefits that we receive. This is the Christian benefit package, if you will. Uh, Chapter 8 of Romans um, uh, is all about the benefits of the the gospel to us as people. And and Paul just stacks one blessing, one benefit, one uh, joyous thing that God gives to us on top of another. And when we get to verses 31 to 39, what we find out is that Paul has saved the best for last. He really has. Because what we find out in these eight verses is all about the relentless love of God. And if I can uh, summarize it for you, what we find out is that God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, that it never fails, never stops, never gives up on us, and is never overcome by our sinfulness. Amen? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end. Somebody should write a song about that. Um, But uh, in any case, what we find out is that God loves us with such perfection that none of His promises to us will ever fail, and we will enjoy them in His presence forever and ever. You know, you can read all of, all of chapter 8, and you can think to yourself, well, this all sounds really good. Uh, this sounds amazing. This is all, though, things that happen to us that we can't really see. How do we know that these things are going to happen? Well, Paul tells us at the end of the chapter, it is because of God's love for you. The fact that He chose you before the foundation of the world to be His child. That you are part of the elect of God. And therefore, His love for you is relentless. It never gives up. It never fails. 
It never slows down. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to to look at these verses with you because I think that a lot of believers in Christ, even if they've been believers for a long time, I think they really struggle, many of us, with really enjoying and embracing their security in Christ. Uh, I think a whole lot of us think that God's love might be unconditional, but somehow He loves me on a trial basis. Right? Like uh, if I mess up too much, well, maybe God will be done with me. Maybe I'll get kicked off the team. And so the, the dominant picture that a lot of believers go through their Christian life with is, is one of God looking at them not so much with love as with a, a kind of an expression of profound disappointment. Right? He's not so much a loving father as he is a, a, a disappointed one. And, I, you know, I, I saved you so you could be a lot better than you are. I mean, really. You need to step it up a notch, right? And on the flip side, there are a lot of other Christians, I think, who get worried that if we talk too much about the vast extent of God's love despite our sin, that people will get the wrong idea and they will just start thinking that sin is no big deal and start committing a lot of it. But what I think we need to understand and what Paul is trying to tell us is that it is the people who most deeply understand and most deeply cherish God's love for them that live most free from sin because joy is a far better motivator than fear. Amen? It is. Joy is a far better motivator than fear. And so we want to jump headfirst into the text beginning in verse 31. And we want to see, in, beginning in verse 31 down through verse 34, that God's love conquers sin so completely through Christ. Uh, so let's look at these verses. Uh, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now the point of these four verses is again that God's love conquers our sin completely through Christ. That there's not any left over for uh, us to somehow deal with on our own. That God's love for us com- is compl- it completely conquers our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the gospel wipes away not just some of my sin or most of my sin or all but the ones I've committed lately. That it completely conquers all my sin. And God's love for me really does extend that far. Uh, Paul asks in verse 31, he starts with a rhetorical question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Let me ask you a question. What are the these things he's talking about? Well, in the general context, he's talking about everything he's been talking about up until this point in chapter 8, about the fact that God has given us His Spirit, that He's adopted us as sons, that He's given us an inheritance in Christ, that He saved us from sin and death, that He's given us eternal life, and that He's made certain our possession of glory in a redeemed and restored new creation. And 
More specifically, though, these things refers back to verses 28 to 30, which tell us that all these things are going to happen as part of God's good plan to bring us out of our sinfulness and into conformity with the character of Christ. Remember, God, having saved you, had a plan for you from eternity past to conform you to the image of His Son. Right? In other words, to make you and me look like Jesus. That we would take on the character of Christ. And that we would look like and live like and be like Jesus. And he says, what should we say to these things? These things that tell us that, that God from eternity past had a plan to save us and to bring us into relationship with Him through the Holy Spirit uh, based on the, the death and resurrection of Christ to make us look like Jesus that we might worship Him and enjoy Him forever. What should we say to that? And his answer is this. If these things are true about us, then it is also true that God is completely for us. Isn't it? That He is in our corner. That He is, he is rooting for us and cheering for us and helping us. And He is for us in every way possible. He is saving, helping, keeping, loving until the day of redemption. And Paul goes on in verse 32. He says, Since God has already sacrificed His only begotten Son to bring us into His family, how can He fail to give us what He has already promised? Think about this. What what God is telling us here in His Word in verse 32 when He says, He who who sacrificed His own Son to bring us into His family, how will He not also freely give us all things? Meaning, God so loves you and me that it is as if He looked down through the corridors of history before the world was even created. And he said, I will do anything to get that person into my family. Up to and including the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God. If that does not blow your mind, it really should. I will do anything to get them into my family. And he says, look, if God loves us that far, how can He also not freely give us everything else He has promised? God has already done the most He can possibly do for us. Beyond giving Jesus, He can't go any better than that. There's nothing left to give you that's better than that. And He's already done that, so why would He not also give you lesser things? And his point is this, is that since God has given us the ultimate gift, do you honestly think He will withhold from you the lesser gifts that He's been discussing up to this point? And the implied answer is, well, obviously not. If God loves you enough to give you the ultimate gift, He will also give you freely all the lesser gifts He's already described. Of course God will give us those things too. How do we know? 
Well, because our sin is completely wiped out by Jesus' death. Look at verse 33 and verse 34. Verse 33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, who are the elect? Okay, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, raise your hand. You are the elect. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's the short answer. The elect is, the elect is a, a New Testament word uh, that describes the people whom God has chosen to be His children. How do you know that, they are, that you're chosen? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, okay, you're one of them, right? You are part of the elect. You are the, among the people whom God has chosen. And we know that you are because you have believed. If you were not among the elect, you would not have believed. That's biblical teaching, okay? Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And everyone who comes to me is going to be saved right whosoever will may come but God calls people to himself and the elect are those who believe all right so he says who shall be a charge bring a charge against God's elect it is God who justifies meaning the only person who has a right to hold us accountable for our sin and rebellion is the very person who credits Christ's righteousness to us Who's the person who is able to judge us for our sin and rebellion? God. Who is the person who has already declared us righteous through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Same person. God. So in other words, there's no one who can hold me accountable for my sin because God already wiped it out in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so there is no court to which I must give account for my sin because God already dealt with it through Jesus. So who can bring a charge against me? Answer, nobody. And in case you were curious, in case you're wondering, well, maybe the Father doesn't hold our sin against us, but what about Jesus? I mean, after all, my sin did put Jesus to death on the cross. Maybe He holds a grudge on that. Right? Well, without getting too technical, you know, God as a triune being, they all agree, right? But just in case you were confused on that point, he goes on, verse 34, he says, Who is there to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. And He is where? At the right hand of God. And what is He doing? Interceding for, in other words, praying for, advocating for, serving as your defense attorney before God Himself. And who is saying, in other words, my righteousness was credited to that person. In, in my death on the cross and my resurrection from the dead, I gave that person, I gave Paula and Brittany and Joe and Nikki and Mark and a whole host of billions of other people all over the globe eternal life. 
And Jesus, who is the one who died in our place, serves as our advocate, our defense attorney before God, who is the only one who could hold us accountable for our sin. But in fact, God has already eliminated our sin through the death of Jesus. And so in other words, we stand not just innocent, but righteous before the living God. And why does that happen? Because God loves us. How He loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And all of these things are coming about precisely in accordance with God's plan from before there was a creation in which we existed. This is all unfolding entirely according to God's plan. Neither the Father nor the Son condemns you because in love they predestined you and chose you for salvation before the world was made. And then once they, that you entered the world, they sent the Spirit to call you and justify you and glorify you that you might bring glory to God forever and ever as a trophy of His grace. And this ought to be, if you needed encouragement this morning, this ought to be a heaping helping, right? A great big snow shovel full in your bowl, right? Uh, Because this is great stuff. That God loves you this much that He has wiped out every bit of your sin. And that, in fact, Jesus Himself, who was put to death by your sin and by mine, is your defense attorney and is saying I paid for that and the judge is the father who loves you and sent Jesus to get you is can my sin end God's love for me no why not because God's love put my sin to an end My sin cannot end God's love for me because God's love put my sin to an end. God's love so completely conquers my sin that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That's the conclusion. That nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Look at verse 35 to 39. These are awesome verses too. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I die, you get the preacher to preach those verses at my funeral, okay? Plant me in the yard out here somewhere and get the preacher to preach those. Okay, get the preacher to preach those that nothing, not life, not death, 
not nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 35 is a rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nobody. Because nobody can. Will trials and pain separate you from God's love? No. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword either. And that whole list is particularly relevant when you consider that, that Romans is written at a time and to a group of people who are probably just starting to undergo persecution from the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. Some of these things were going to happen to some of them. In fact, Paul was going to find out all about the sword at the end of his life from the Roman Empire. They're going to take one and chop his head off in a prison. There were people who became so poor that they didn't have enough clothes to wear. Nakedness. They were people who lost their position in society and went hungry. And they're wondering, does God love me right now? Because it doesn't feel like it. My circumstances do not point to the fact that I have a loving Father in heaven because I'm running around about half-dressed with not nearly enough to eat and I'm on the run for my life. Did that mean that God's love for me ended? What's Paul telling us? No. God's love for you is relentless. It continues. When you're going through the mill, you might be tempted, as I have been tempted to ask the Lord, are you sure you still love me? And the answer coming back from the page here, from the lips of God Himself, is a resounding, yes, of course I still love you. Of course I still love you. No pain, no trial, no danger, no death can ever separate you from God's love. Verse 36, Paul quotes uh, Psalm chapter 44, verse 22. And he does that, I think, to remind them and to remind us, because Psalm, Psalm 44 is a, is, a, is a song sung by God's people to God at a time when they feel like He has gone like on vacation and left them all alone. And he quotes one of the verses of the people complaining to God, for your sake, meaning... God, for your sake, we have been killed all day long. And we are regarded by our enemies as sheep to be slaughtered. Are you still there? Yes. Yes. He wants to remind them that while God's people sometimes feel like God has abandoned them, He has not. His love continues through every trial, every difficulty, every painful circumstance, even through death itself. You ever watch The Princess Bride? It's kind of a goofy movie. We've got it at my house about three quarters memorized, right? Okay. Remember when Wesley and Buttercup finally find each other, right? She thinks he's a pirate, and he has been a pirate for a while. Um... But she finally realizes it's him, and he, she's like, I did something stupid. And she's like, he's like, what's that? Well, I got married, you know. She's like, well, why'd you do that? Well, because you were dead. 
And he's like, death can't stop true love, right? It's a really romantic line. Um, but uh, I tried it out. It didn't work for me. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but Paul is telling us that, that, that God's love for us is true and that not even death can stop it. Because who's waiting on the other side of death? God is. And He's going to say to us as we come through the gate of death, we're going to walk through the gate, and He's going to be standing there on the other side. And He's going to say to you, and say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come enjoy your Master's happiness. Right? Does God's love for us survive death? You bet it does. And Paul is so overwhelmed in his understanding of the greatness of God's love that in verse 37 he invents a new word to describe it. Okay? It is the word nakao. Okay, now you don't need to know that. It's a Greek word. But Nike is the god of victory. Okay, or actually she was the goddess of victory. So if you bought Nikes, you know, your Nike tennis shoes, you got the swoosh down the side. Uh, those, are, those are for victory, right? The God of victory. Now, I think she should have been, they, for a shoe company, they should have picked the God of defeat. But in any case, but I'm bummed. All right. But anyway, she was the goddess of victory, all right? And so, nakao is the word for conquering. I've been waiting all week to use that joke. Uh, but nakao is the word for conquering, for victory, for winning, right? And 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 Paul doesn't have a, a word for this, for a, a, a word adequate to use it, and so he says, "Well, it's hyper victory. We have hyper victory, and it's the only place this word occurs." all of the extant Greek literature that we have from the ancient world, it's the only place that's ever used is in Paul right here. And he's, he's, he just invented this word to describe it. But to give you an idea of what, what hyper-victory is like, it's like, it's like the 1985 Bears take on my 11-year-old son's JFL team in football. Okay? And they're just, they're just feeding Walter Payton the rock every time, Right? Boom, threw for a touchdown. Boom, threw for a touchdown. Oh, we got to give Bill Perry some, some, uh, some, some kind of touches, right? Give it to him. Let the fridge run through these uh, 100-pound 11-year-olds and his 300-pound bulk, right? Um, that's the kind of victory that God has given us over all of the difficulties, over all of the pain, over even death itself. He says in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We are running up the score, in other words. What's the score? Well, it's 240 to zero. What quarter is it? Well, there's still 10 minutes left in the first quarter. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a bloodbath, right? But at the same time, God is telling us, look, this is how much I love you. That it's more than conquering. It's not just a victory. It's not even a contest between God and these things. And 
Look at the list here, verse 38 and 39. Neither life nor death. Our lives don't prevent God from loving us, and our deaths don't end His love for us. Neither angels nor rulers. Uh, Here, I think, this refers to God's angels and their various levels of hierarchy that are there within them. The point is, is that none of them, not even the highest of them, can interfere with God's love for us. Angels are the greatest being in the universe other than God, and they can't interfere. The point is that nothing that exists in the present, nothing that exists in the future, nor any powers, which is probably a reference, I think, to the demonic realm. You feel fearful about those guys? Don't worry about them. They can't mess with God's love for you. God's love is not changed by our relative distance from Him. So, if we're down at the lowest point in creation, which on this earth I think is the bottom of the Marianas Trench, which is like several miles down, uh, way past where it crushes the deepest going submarine that we have, if you're down at the bottom of that thing, does God still love you? Yes. How about height? If you're as high as you can get, does God love you anymore? No, He loves you the same. Perfectly and completely. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. The only thing that possibly could, which is our sin, has already been taken care of by Christ at the cross. And what this tells us, this passage tells us, you can put those two lines in your outline together, make yourself a sentence that you can write on a chalkboard or on your mirror or something to remind you that God's love so completely conquers our sin through Christ that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God and His love. And knowing that ought to give you just wonderful confidence as you go through life. In a good marriage, you know, you don't live in fear of one day waking up and finding that you've been abandoned because you messed up one time too many, right? In a good marriage, that's not what happens. You don't live in fear with your mate that they're going to get tired of you and walk off. And God's love is like that. He is the ultimate bridegroom, and we are His bride. And we are never going to one day wake up and discover that He has left us. Because He loves us. He loves us completely and perfectly. And His love for us causes our love to grow and to deepen and to change so that we, because we long to please our mate. Right? In other words, God's love is not a, is not a license to sin. It's freedom to grow and to change and to mature into the person God wants us to be. Right? Martin Luther said a long time ago, and I think this is true, he said, marriage taught me what no monastery ever could, right? 
he was a monk before he came to faith in Jesus in a real way, which is funny in itself. <laughs> you go to seminary, dedicate yourself to God, and not know Jesus, right? But then, after he, as he left the priesthood, he got married to a woman named Catherine von Bora, and he had to figure out how to live with another human being in a face-to-face way. Figured out he didn't know how to do that, which... By the way, every couple that stands up at the altar, they don't know how to do that either, (laughs) right? (laughs) And you have to figure it out, and you have to grow up, right? And ideally what happens is, is that as you love each other, and as you see the hurt that that you and your sinfulness inflict on this person that you love, you go, ooh, that's a bad look. I'm going to change. I'm going to repent. Uh, so that I can stop hurting the person who loves me, right? That's the idea. Well, God is our husband, if you will. We are his bride, and we are called to change in response to his love for us. And so when we sin, we go, oh, that doesn't look great. I'm I'm changing. I'm going to conform myself to the character of Christ that I might love better the person who loves me, right? A relationship with Jesus works the same identical way, in other words. It's not a license to sin, right? Nobody gets married and says, well, you know, since you said you were going to be with me forever, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want, and if it hurts you, so what? Really? Is that what you got married for? Right? No one gets married for that reason. They get married because they want to demonstrate love to the person that loves them. Right? I love you, you love me, and we change together. Well, Jesus doesn't need to grow up like all of us, right? He already loves us perfectly. But we change in response to His love. So, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us so completely that You sent the Son to be the Savior. You sent the Holy Spirit into the world to call us to faith in the Son that You sent. You chose us as Your children made us the elect before the world was made. The book of life was written before the creation came into existence. And Father, you know, you know our thoughts even before they come out of our mouths. And we're just amazed by your love for us. We thank you for it, Father. Although thank you doesn't seem quite adequate, we devote ourselves to you because you love us so much. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.